Hey guys, it's Tana. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Oddity Podity. I know I'm a tad late this week, but I'm blaming it all on Dave. Dave Grohl, that is. I went to see the Foo Fighters on Wednesday, and I did not make it back in time to upload the show for Thursday. And since Dave Grohl is a national treasure that none of us deserve, I couldn't miss him, and I hope you'll forgive me for it. Dave has written a ton of great songs about heartbreak and lost love, and that's what this week's episode is about. The Ghosts of Your Exes, Part 2. So if someone has gotten the best, the best, the best, the best of you, keep listening, because you're not alone. today on our journey of marital misadventure is the Wayside Inn in Sudbury, Massachusetts. It's also known as Longfellow's Wayside Inn, and it's so old that it's on the National Registry of Historic Places. It's known as Longfellow's Wayside Inn because way back in 1862, poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow stayed there, and it left such an impression on him that he wrote a whole book of poems called Tales of the Wayside Inn that was set in the place. Obviously, the inn haunted Longfellow, as he wrote about its old, ancient, and crumbling walls. And he was right. At the time of his visit, the Wayside Inn was already almost 150 years old, and was already very haunted. It all started in 1716, when a man named David Howe set out with a dream and a recently obtained license to operate an inn and tavern. And that's just what he did. He turned his family home, which had been built in 1701, into a motel and watering hole. Just what every wife wants her husband to do. But David's idea actually worked out pretty well. When he died, his son Ezekiel took over as keeper of the inn and tavern. Ezekiel not only kept the family business afloat, he did it all while fighting in the Revolutionary War with the Sudbury Minutemen. And when he died, his son took it over. And so it went until the mid-1800s, when Lyman Howe inherited the whole shebang. As it turned out, Lyman wasn't as great at innkeeping as his predecessors were. In fact, he was pretty terrible at it, and was mainly interested only in the tavern part of the deal. As he drank away the profits, the inn started to lose money. Luckily, though, Lyman had a sister who was a charismatic businesswoman, and although she wasn't technically the owner of the joint, she kept the ship afloat. Her name was Jerusha, and according to local legend, she was not only beautiful, she was also smart, a good cook, and could sing and play the piano like nobody's business. In fact, according to an article by Metro West Daily News, Jerusha owned the first piano in Sudsbury. That piano turned out to be an ingenious marketing tool, as people would come from far and wide to see just what the heck such a contraption was. If you've ever been to a piano bar, then you know what a draw it is, because drinking and singing loudly go hand in hand. While my personal favorite piano bar song is Sarah Sarah Swinging on the Outhouse Door, the song that Jerusha was most famous for was a much more classy tune called The Battle of Prague. Jerusha was a charming entertainer, so naturally all the men were after her, and she became known as the Belle of Sudsbury. The thing is, Jerusha was just a little bit bougie. Even though she was constantly on the verge of going bankrupt due to her brother's drinking and poor business skills, 
Because she came from a long English bloodline, she believed that she should only date an Englishman. Now, back then, there's all kinds of immigration going on, so you couldn't throw a stone without hitting an Irishman, an Italian, or a Frenchman, and so on. But apparently, a full-blooded Englishman was kind of hard to find in those parts. So, Jerusha stayed single. That is, until one night when a bona fide Englishman came swaggering through the inn's doors and ended Jerusha's lifelong dry spell. The two fell madly in love and decided to get married. First, though, the Englishman said that he had to run back to England and get his affairs all in order. You know, withdraw all his money from the First Bank of England, turn off his utilities, add international roaming to his AT&T plan, stuff like that. He promised Jerusha that he'd totally come back for her as soon as he got done with all of it, and they'd get hitched and live happily ever after. With this, the English dude sashayed off into the sunset, leaving Jerusha to wait. And wait. And wait. She died at the way too young age of 44, still waiting on the guy. Some say she died of a broken heart. According to the Metro News article, Jerusha left proof of this behind in her diary, which detailed a roller coaster of meeting the guy, swan diving into depression, and concluding with a final short entry that said, quote, rid of that trouble, end quote. Man, back when I was bartending at the shoot and stab, guys used to do this to me on the reg. As long as I was serving them brewskis, I was the love of their life and they were going to buy me a brand new double wide and fill its closets with every piece of clothing from the Reba McIntyre collection. They'd promised me the world. One of them even promised to come back the very next weekend. We made big plans for it. Of course, he didn't and I didn't see him again until about five years later when I moved to another city and ran into him with his wife, who was the girl he'd actually been dating back when I met him. I still live in the same town as this guy, and I don't think he even remembers who I am. I, however, remember him, and I feel fortunate to have dodged a bullet because he did not age well. To be fair, this is how I feel about 99% of the guys that I thought that I could not live without at some point in my life. Also, to be fair, I'm pretty old too, and no one looks great at my age, so maybe it's not all on them. What I'm trying to say is that I'm at peace with being rejected because it all turned out for the best. However, the same cannot be said for Jerusha Howe. In the centuries since her death, countless visitors of the Wayside Inn have reported evidence of her presence in room 9 and room 10. Room 9 being Jerusha's former bedroom and room 10 being where she did all of her sewing. People have heard disembodied sounds of a woman crying and were overwhelmed by the strong smell of citrus, reminiscent of the orange-scented perfume that Jerusha was famous for wearing. Others have seen water faucets turn on and windows open all by themselves. More than one guest felt an invisible person crawl into bed with them as they slept into room nine. And one lucky fella got a ghostly back massage while his wife was in another room. I mean, maybe he was an Englishman and Jerusha was feeling lonely after a couple hundred years of solitude. Okay, here's a story about room nine that isn't nearly as spicy as that one. A paranormal investigator set up a camera to record activity overnight. According to that Metro News article, the video later showed a misty black form rising up out of the floor beside the bed. The mist then moved in an arc over the bed and disappeared into the wall behind it. A few minutes later, the exact same thing happened all over again. Yet another investigator caught the sounds of ghostly piano music playing on tape. After much research, he was finally able to identify the tune. It wasn't my favorite, Sarah Sarah, though. It was Jerusha's favorite, The Battle of Prague. <laughs> 
If you dare, you too can stay in Jerusha's old bedroom because the Wayside Inn is still in operation. And like I said, it's on the National Registry of Historic Places, and that's not just because it's haunted. It's mostly because in 1923, Henry Ford purchased the inn and 3,000 acres of the land surrounding it. And yeah, I mean the Henry Ford who created actual cars. Henry loved Sudbury and built multiple buildings on the property, many of which still stand today. There's a grist mill, which Ford built in 1929. The Martha Mary Chapel, built in 1940 and named after Henry Ford's mother and mother-in-law. An ice house and a cider mill, both built in the 1930s. And a cold storage cellar built underground for storing and preserving food before refrigerators were a thing. Aside from the 300-plus-year-old inn, there's a barn built by the Howe family in the 1800s. There's also the Redstone Schoolhouse, which was built in 1798 and believed to be the schoolhouse that's mentioned in the nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb. I swear New England is at the root of everything. Oh, and there's also a coach house that was built in 1913, which is made from reclaimed colonial-era timberwood. All that to say that Jerusha probably isn't the only ghost roaming around on the wayside inn. This next tale of love gone wrong happened in my neck of the woods. Most college campuses have a resident ghost, and this is true as well for Henderson State University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, and its Lady in Black. If you drive through any town in Arkansas, you'll see an abundance of three types of buildings, restaurants, banks, and churches. I'm not kidding. Even if it's one of those towns that you'd miss if you blinked while driving through it, and even if that town only had three buildings total, those three would be a restaurant, a bank, and a church. And yes, Sonic counts as a restaurant down here. You see, you gotta have a place to eat on Sunday after leaving church, and the church needs a place to keep all your tithes that you keep giving them. The point I'm trying to make is that Arkansans take their religion very seriously. And that's at the heart of this story. You see, Henderson State University was founded in 1890 as Arkadelphia Methodist College. And right across the street from Arkadelphia Methodist was another college, their arch rival in football and in heaven, Wachita Baptist University. And when I say right across the street, I really mean it. If you map quest this, the two campuses are 75.5 feet away from each other, which is about an eight-second walk. And you know how the young folks are. Even though the Baptists and the Methodists were enemies in the streets, some of them still got friendly in the sheets. As the story goes, a young Henderson College student found herself in love with a Wachita Baptist fella. According to an article on ArkansasOnline.com, Everything was lovey-dovey until the Baptist guy started getting a ton of heat from his buddies about dating a heathen Methodist. So when the next year's freshman arrived, he dumped her for a younger, more holier-than-thou girl. Devastated, but still unwilling to convert, the Henderson student dressed in a black dress and veil and then threw herself off DeSoto Bluff to her death. She now returns to haunt the Henderson female dorms every year, either at Halloween or during the week of the Battle of the Ravine, the annual football game between Henderson State and Wachita Baptist, supposedly in search of the skank who stole her man. Since the late 1920s, people have claimed to have seen her walking the dorm halls holding a candle and rattling chains, and sometimes even chasing freshman girls through the building on cold, dark nights. They say she resides on the 8th floor of the girls' dorm, and she normally stays there until the veil between worlds gets thinner in the fall or whenever an OBU game is afoot and she smells Baptist flesh. 
Henderson State embraces their lady in black, even incorporating her into the yearly speech given to entering freshmen each year on the first day of class. Here, incoming teenagers are warned not to poach each other's boyfriends or else incur the wrath of the lady in black. But wait, there's more. You see, true love isn't the only thing that Wachita students have stolen from the Henderson State kids. Posted on the Wachita Baptist University's very own website is their side of what really happened, and they claim that the lady in black is actually haunting them. They even name names, which makes their story sound totally legit. An excerpt from the piece, which was written by Mackenzie Wells in 2020 and posted on obu.edu, says, quote, The legend of the lady in black dates back to the 1920s when a Wachita girl fell in love with a boy from Henderson State University, OBU's crosstown rival. What could possibly go wrong? As they began, Jane and Joshua didn't think much of their controversial relationship until Henderson's homecoming game approached. With this rivalry in mind, Henderson students pressured Joshua to break up with Jane. Finally, on the day of homecoming, he ended things with her and took a Henderson girl to the homecoming dance instead. Devastated, Jane went back to her room and combed bottoms and put on a black dress and veil before throwing herself down the elevator shaft. Now her ghost haunts Cone Bottoms, where she roams the halls moaning and sobbing, a warning against dating a Henderson boy. It is said that you can still hear her moans in the halls at night. Legend also has it that every year on the night of Henderson's homecoming, the lady in black leaves her room in Cone Bottoms to search Henderson's campus for the one who stole her true love, end quote. Okay, I'm not sure who's telling the truth here. It seems like this school rivalry goes way beyond religion, football, and dating. I mean, they're even poaching each other's ghosts. Or maybe because the two campuses are a fart's distance from each other and so much time has passed, the lady in black just gets lost and haunts both places, now unsure exactly who she's even mad at anymore. In any case, both colleges say there's no record of any female throwing themselves to their death from a bluff or an elevator shaft or anything else like that. So the legend of a broken-hearted ghost may or may not be true. You know what I always say about record-keeping way back in the day? It's sketch at best, and just because no one can find a bona fide news article or police report doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't happen. I mean, most of my health records were destroyed in a flood in 1986, but that doesn't mean I never had chicken pox. I did, and I have a scar on my lip to prove it. However, in the Arkansas Online article that I mentioned earlier, one man offers proof that there actually is some truth to the legend of the lady in black. The article quotes university historian David Susser, who says that the story probably originated with a student named Nell Page, who attended the school back in 1910 when it was still Methodist College. On nights before they played the Baptist in football, Nell would dress up in either a black or a white robe. Then she'd walk up and down the halls of her dorm. If Nell wore a white robe, it meant that their team would lose. If she wore a black robe, it meant that they'd win the game. At the time, only females were allowed to live on campus, so this tradition meant that female students came to welcome the sight of Nell roaming the halls in a black robe. And while Nell did not die of anything so terrible as hurling herself off of anything, she did die young, at the age of 27, but of tuberculosis rather than of a broken heart. However, it's possible that Nell got so much positive attention in life by roaming the halls in a black robe in front of her female classmates in life that she decided to do it for all of eternity in the afterlife.
Despite those last two stories, it's not just women who pine for lost loves well beyond a relationship's expiration date. Our last story is about a man who's still salty after being rejected more than 150 years ago. The governor's mansion in Austin, Texas is home to multiple ghosts. According to the mansion's official website, tspb.texas.gov, the mansion has served as the official home of all Texas governors since 1856. It's the oldest governor's mansion west of the Mississippi and one of the oldest continuously occupied governor's homes in the country. So multiple hauntings make sense because we know that those political types get up to some shenanigans. The first story that I want to tell you happened during the Civil War, when Pendleton Murrow was the governor of Texas. According to GhostCityTours.com, one of the governor's nephews, a boy of 19 years old, came to the mansion to visit his uncle. At that very same time, the governor's wife's niece was there visiting too, visiting her auntie. Now, Governor Murrah's nephew took one look at the governess's niece and fell head over heels in love. Of course, the niece liked the attention, but she really wasn't feeling it for the guy. She friend-zoned him real fast, but that didn't seem to matter because the very next day, less than 24 hours after they met, he proposed. Yeah, dude bro smooth proposed marriage to a girl who was just not that into him. And naturally, she rejected that proposal. The poor guy didn't take it well. Later that night, he went upstairs, lay down on his bed, and shot himself. This tragedy happened on a Sunday night. And ever since then, sobs and moans could be heard coming from that room on Sunday nights. The room was eventually sealed up, but all that accomplished was to muffle the sounds. Years passed and the room was eventually unsealed. And when that happened, the paranormal activity really ramped up in addition to all that moaning and crying. The staff avoids that room whenever possible as it's said that there's a heavy depressive feeling that comes when one nears it. In addition to his nephew, Governor Murrah himself is said to roam the halls of the mansion as well, perhaps plagued with eternal guilt over what happened. People who have seen the ghost say that it's clearly the governor, as evidenced by his portrait, which also hangs in the mansion. Murrah died fighting in the Civil War, and he refused to give up even after Robert E. Lee surrendered in April of 1865. Instead, he fled to Mexico in June of that same year and died there just a few weeks later. I'm not sure exactly how he died. Wikipedia just said that the trip had taken its toll on his health. They didn't say he died of gunshot wounds or of Montezuma's revenge, but whatever took him out, it doesn't seem like his last days were quite as lovely as the days that he spent strolling around the governor's estate in Austin, which is probably why he came back there to spend his afterlife. Now, the governor's mansion boasts another story of love gone wrong that happened on the mansion grounds well before any governors ever lived there. It happened when the land was still occupied by Native Americans. As the tale goes, a young Texas scout fell head over heels in love with a beautiful Comanche girl, but her dad was not having any of it. But it's hard to keep the youngins apart when nature is calling them to hook up, so the two lovebirds decided to see each other on the down low. They met up all over the grounds of the mansion, hooking up at all times of the day and sneaking around to keep their love a secret. Of course, dad caught on to this pretty quick as dads do and eventually he caught them literally in the act. If there's anything that will turn a dad into a quivering blob of murderous rage, it's catching his daughter in the middle of doing the deed. The girl's father attacked the boy and killed him. 
Then, when he tried to drag his daughter home, she turned the knife on herself and ended her own life. It's said that this couple remain on the property to this day. Multiple visitors have reported seeing the ghostly image of a beautiful native girl holding hands with a handsome young white man as they walk around the mansion's grounds. Besides the ghost of the lovelorn, the ghost of Sam Houston also lives on in the mansion. According to GhostCityTours.com, his full-body apparition has been seen in the room that was his sleeping chambers when he was alive on more than one occasion. The website recounts a famous encounter that happened in the 1980s when Governor Mark White and his wife lived in the mansion. In the hallway outside their bedroom was a portrait of Governor Houston with a light above it. One night, Governor White's wife, Linda, noticed that someone had left a light on above the portrait, so she turned it off. The next morning, it was inexplicably turned back on. For years after that, whenever anyone would turn the light off, it would seemingly turn itself back on. Sam Houston was an interesting character. As a teenager, he ran away from home and lived among the Cherokee for three years and was given the name Raven. He served as the first and third president of the Republic of Texas and was one of the first two individuals to represent Texas in the United States Senate. He also served as the sixth governor of Tennessee and the seventh governor of Texas and was the only person ever to be elected governor of two different states. During the Civil War, he fought to keep Texas from seceding to the Confederacy. And for this, he was forced out of office in 1861. So yeah, I think Sam H. deserves to have the light kept on in his portrait. He's earned it. There's one last ghost that haunts the governor's mansion as well. It's the spirit of a maid who found herself unwed and pregnant. If you think Texas is harsh on reproductive rights in the year of our Lord 2023, imagine what it was like hundreds of years ago. This poor lass was fired when her pregnancy became apparent. Her ghost has been seen standing at the main entrance of the mansion, begging for her job back. That's a sad note to end the podcast on, but here we are. Which is the name of the Foo Fighters' newest album. I'm not promoing for the Foo Fighters, I'm just saying. Guys, thanks so much for spending your time with me today and being so patient with me while I try to actually live my life. Like most podcasters, I have a day job and I have to keep doing that in addition to doing the thing that I love, which is podcasting. If you feel moved to support the show with actual dollars and you want to throw a few my way, please visit www.buzzsprout.com slash odd pod. I would really appreciate it, though I can sustain on your love alone. But go to www.buzzsprout.com slash O-D-D-P-O-D. If you'd like to also support with a few dollars, I appreciate you either way. I love you and I hope to see you next week. Same time, same place for a little more history and a little more haunt. We'll see y'all then.